Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Of you, I want to invite you to open, turn, swipe, <clears throat> however you get to your scriptures this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Jonathan Edwards was probably one of the greatest American pastors and theologians. He was the pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And it was under his ministry that the Lord poured out the first great awakening on our nation. And Jonathan Edwards' grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, was the pastor of the church. And he was a pretty established pastor. He was a very revered pastor. And then in 1727, Jonathan Edwards was ordained to serve alongside his grandfather. So he was kind of the co-pastor. And then two years later, his grandfather died, and Jonathan Edwards became the pastor of the church. And from 1734 to 1737, that was the first great awakening. The, the Lord poured out revival on the land. The church grew. They had to build a new building. And so things were going great. But then something regrettable happened in 1750. 23 years later, after he first became their pastor, after experiencing this outpouring, the first great awakening, the church voted 90% to fire him as their pastor. Now you may think, after all those years, why did they fire him? Well, his theology had changed. You see, his grandfather practiced the Lord's Supper in a very unbiblical way. His grandfather allowed anybody to take the Lord's Supper. You didn't have to be a Christian. You could be a pagan. You could be unregenerate. And so that was the practice for all these years at the church that anybody could take the Lord's Supper. And then Jonathan Edwards came under conviction. He said, this is not biblical. Only believers should be taking the Lord's Supper. And so he struggled with this, and he went to other pastors in the area and asked for advice. And then he wrote an, an essay. He wrote an article where he was going to lay forth his theology on why he had changed his view to a more biblical view. And so there was going to be a church business meeting where he was going to share his insights. He was going to share his theology. And, and what happened at this business meeting was all these people showed up that weren't members. That never happens at a church business meeting, right? All these people showing up. And so the church voted 90% to 10% to relieve him of his duties as pastor. Only 10% of the congregation supported him after 23 years. Now this saddens me for a lot of reasons. Number one, how can a church family that experienced the first great awakening do that to their pastor? Secondly, Jonathan Edwards did nothing wrong, and for 23 years he had faithfully served, and they fired him for no good reason. And then number three, how could this church be persuaded by all of these other voices coming in? Because really it was a lot of the unbelievers that were coming in and influencing the church to make this decision. Did Jonathan Edwards do anything wrong as a pastor? 
No. He was following what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper. He was a faithful pastor who stood for biblical truth, and yet the church said after 23 years, we're kicking you to the curb. We're firing you. We're getting rid of you. Now, why do I bring up the disheartening firing of Jonathan Edwards? Last week, we started 1 Timothy chapter 5. And this passage of Scripture teaches us how we are to treat one another in the church. And we talked about how we're a church family and we need to have a culture. We're asking the Lord to create a culture of patience with one another, purity with one another, provision. We spent a lot of time talking about how we provide, especially for widows and those that are in need. And so today, we're going to see how the church should treat its elders and how elders should treat the church. Now, you may think, this is redundant, Pastor Sean. Didn't you just preach on this a few weeks ago? Yes, because Timothy addresses it twice. He addresses it in chapter 3, and then he addresses it again in chapter 5. Now, this may seem redundant to you to have this topic come up twice, but it's important because it's vital for the life of the church to have biblically qualified elders. Now, you may ask, why are you skipping over verses 9 through 16? Not that it's not interesting material, but really it's how do you enroll widows in the church and just a lot of things related to widows and i felt like i addressed a lot of that last week there are true widows and there are false widows there are godly widows there's ungodly widows you can go back and read that but it's basically instructions for timothy on how to enroll widows in the life of the church and we we addressed a lot of that last week so i felt like we kind of need to move forward in first timothy so let's read together starting in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now here's the main point of this passage of Scripture. The church rises and falls on the leadership of its elders. I strongly believe that. A church will rise or fall on the leadership of its elders, its pastors, its spiritual leaders. So let's look at three issues this morning, three teachings related to the spiritual leadership of elders. Back in chapter 3, Paul talked about the character qualifications. Here we're getting into a little bit more detail about how elders should function and how the church should treat elders. So here's the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture. First, we see the primary task the task of elders. What are we called to do? What is the task of an elder? Well, you see that in verse 17. There are two. My job description is bound up in these two things. Verse 17, I am to lead well 
and labor in preaching and teaching. And I, I'll put it together. I am too, and the elders are too, and Pastor Dustin is to lead well by or through our preaching and teaching ministry. To lead well. That word lead, or as the ESV translates, rule, it's a very interesting word in the original language. It means to stand before people. It's really what the word means. Literally means to stand before. And so literally as a pastor, I, I stand before you every week preaching God's word. So literally I stand before you. But really the word is more symbolic of standing in front of the congregation in the sense that we are the leaders. We're the ones out front blazing the trail. We are the ones that are, are leading and guiding and spiritually directing the affairs of the church. And it means more than just a pastor's an example. It really means that he, he leads by example, but he goes before the congregation in leadership, in prayer, in theology. He helps the church understand its mission. It, it really conveys um, godly servant leadership. And notice what Paul says there in verse 17. Let the elders who rule or lead well. There's that little descriptor lead well which means that there are pastors that can lead poorly there is such a thing as poor leadership ungodly leadership let the elders who rule well now this word lead rule direct paul uses it in three other places it's his favorite word in the greek text for leadership especially pastoral leadership so we see it in three other places besides here in 1 Timothy 5.17. We see it in Romans chapter 12, 6-8, when Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. And so he says this in Romans 12, 6-8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, use them, the one who leads with zeal. Same Greek word there, leads. Now here Paul is saying you need to lead with zeal. You need to lead with passion, okay? So as a pastor, as an elder, we're not just to kind of perform our job and just kind of be, uh, it's like, I got to do this. It's kind of boring. I don't have any passion. I don't have any excitement. A pastor should be excited and zealous for serving God and serving his congregation. He's to lead well, and he's to lead with zeal, with passion, with a servant's heart, the other place we see it is in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. Those who are over you in the Lord. That's the same Greek word, those who lead you, those who are over you. So godly elders lead we lead well, we lead with passion, we lead with zeal, we are to be those that encourage servant leadership, shepherding, correcting, doing it with diligence, doing it with humility, doing it with personal integrity. And then the other place we saw it was, we've already seen it, back in chapter 3. So turn back to chapter 3 for a moment. When Paul was giving the character qualifications for an elder, we saw this a few weeks ago when we, when we looked at the character qualifications. But if you go back to chapter 3, look at verse 4 and 5. Again, this is, the, this is talking about the elder. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Okay, managing his household. That's the same Greek word for leading. 
he must lead his household the way he would lead the church. And then in verse 5, if someone, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 5, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Two Greek words there, manage and care. So what you see when Paul talks about pastoral leadership is basically it could be summed up in this, servant leadership. We are serving, we are leading, we are being humble, we are sacrificing, we're doing it with zealous, with, with passion. We are caring for the flock. Now, what does it practically mean for me as your pastor, for Pastor Dustin, and for the elders to lead this congregation? What does that mean? Well, it means a couple of things practically. We lead by example. 1 Peter 5, 2-3 tells us that. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Not that we're perfect examples, but we should be godly examples of what it means to be a godly man, what it means to be a godly husband, what it means to be a godly father, what it means to be a godly businessman, what it means to be just an example to the flock. So that's one of the ways that we lead is by example. But also, one of the practical things we do is we help the church make significant decisions. Now, we are not, like a Presbyterian model, elder rule, in an elder rule Presbyterian model, the elders make all the decisions. We are a Baptist church. We are an elder-led congregation. The elders facilitate. We lead, but ultimately the congregation is the final say. You all vote as a congregation. But the elders lead us in that process. And over the, the many years that I've been here, I can think of a lot of ways the elders have led. Going all the way back to when we were meeting over on Sydney Avenue, we led in capital fundraising and in the purchase of, uh, of this property and the building of this building. The elders led in updating our constitution and bylaws. The elders led in helping us adopt a new confession of faith about five years ago. The elders led back in 2015 when the Supreme Court made gay marriage legal in the land. We led on how we as a church were going to handle that. We led on how to open up this building during COVID. There's a lot of things that we have practically done over the years to lead to protect the theology of the church, to ensure that what's being taught in our growth groups, in our classes, are part of our doctrinal distinctives. We lead by praying. We as elders, when we gather together, we pray diligently for this congregation. We are those that pray and lift those concerns before the Father. And there's times where we've had to lead by warning wayward sinners to repent, and we've had to rebuke and confront at times. So there's many different ways that we have led. So the primary task, number one, of an elder, of a pastor, is to lead well. But then there's a second part of that. So verse 17, let the elders who lead well be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in what? Preaching and teaching. That's the second task, preaching and teaching teaching generally called ministry of the word now notice what paul says those who labor that word means to work to the point of exhaustion to wear yourselves out in preaching and teaching 
This quote comes from R.C. Sproul. He says this, Though preachers differ in the expenditure of energy given in a sermon, it has been estimated that a half-hour sermon can use as much physical energy as eight hours of manual labor. Dynamic preaching requires physical strength and stamina. I don't know if it's that much. I've done eight hours of physical labor, and I don't know if it's comparable. But I can tell you there's times after I get up off this pulpit where I feel drained. So there's a lot of work that goes into sermon prep. Some of you think, well, he just stands up here and kind of wings it on Sunday morning, right? Open my Bible. What are we going to talk about today? Okay, this sounds good. And just kind of like start going off, right? No, I spend a lot of time in sermon prep. And there's some weeks where I wish I had more time because I get to a text that's difficult. I'm like, oh, I wish I had more time because this is, this is tough. So here's the point. I love you and respect you too much to just wing it. When I come into this pulpit, I want to give you my best because you deserve God's best. I honor the word, I honor the Lord, and I honor you. So I want to give of myself to you to expend the energy that's required to labor in preaching and teaching. And here's the thing. I will have to stand before God on the day of judgment and give an account for being a preacher of God's word. Where do you see that in the Bible, Pastor Sean? James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's a scary verse. We who teach, we who are pastors, we who are elders will be judged with a stricter judgment, a higher standard. So we labor in preaching and teaching. Now, you may ask, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? Why are those two words there? Preaching and teaching. Isn't it the same thing? Isn't preaching and teaching the same thing? No, it's not. I will say it like this. You can teach but not preach. Let me give you the difference. They're similarly related, but let me give you the difference. Teaching is geared more towards the mind. Information acquisition. You can teach in a Sunday school class, in a growth group, giving a lecture. When you teach, you're imparting information mainly to be gathered in the mind. You take notes, you receive information, it's more cognitive. That's teaching. Now, preaching, on the other hand, aims for the heart and the will. Preaching is more declarative. Teaching can be a dialogue where you dialogue together in a class. Preaching is a monologue. You're not allowed to interrupt me, though some of you might want to. Preaching is where a man of God stands up and he declares boldly the word of God, and I'm aiming for your heart. Now, I want you to have information. Expository preaching is going to give you information, but if all I do is doctrine dump on you and leave you information, I've I've only gone halfway in a sermon. A good sermon will have teaching, but a great sermon will end with your heart being captivated by Jesus and you moved in your will to respond in repentance and faith and obedience so most effective sermons have teaching information but they also have preaching to the heart to the will it's really the whole person the heart mind will emotions you see I'm aiming for gospel transformation when I preach and what what do I have to trust happens when I preach I've got to believe this word, along with the Holy Spirit, does something supernatural that I can't produce. Now, I can stand up and faithfully preach, but the Holy Spirit does this work. So listen to Isaiah 55, 11. 
So shall be my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed for that which I sent it. God's word does not return empty or void. And then 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's what I aim for every Sunday is that when I get done, I pray the Holy Spirit has gripped you with full conviction, with power, that you've been impacted by the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's not just some man up here spouting opinions. I hopefully am faithfully leading well by preaching and teaching the inspired text in such a way that your mind is impacted, your heart's impacted, and you leave this place ready to obey, to repent, to believe, to respond. John Piper, in his great book, The Supremacy of Preaching, he quotes a Scottish preacher named James Stewart, and and he articulates what effective preaching is. I always go back to this because this is kind of what I think about when I preach. The aim of all genuine preaching, the aims of all genuine preaching, listen to this, are to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Conscience, mind, imagination, heart, will, all impacted by the Word. So, my primary job description as your pastor is to lead well and to do that by laboring in preaching and teaching. Now, Paul says those of us that do that are worthy of double honor. And I told the elders before this in the hallway that that means the pastor should get double salary, right? No, that's, that's not what it means. <laughs> Some of the elders are like, what are you talking about? I'll just give it to Dustin. Dustin deserves double, double one. So, What does it mean to be worthy of double honor? First of all, it does mean respect. The elders who preach and teach were worthy of of respect. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Respect, give honor to your elders. But it also does mean financial compensation. Now, elders, we are not entitled to pay. But at the same time, a church should not be stingy and make their pastors live on poverty level. And what Paul does here is he quotes two passages of Scripture to support his point. One from the Old Testament, and surprisingly, one from the New Testament, which that's a whole other theological discussion. Paul quotes the New Testament, while it's still being in process of being written. So he, first of all, quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4. You shall not muzzle an ox who's treading out the grain. In other words, when, a, when, a, when an ox is working, 
it needs to be able to eat while it's working or it won't be able to work. If you, if you muzzle the ox, that means he can't eat while he's working. So as the ox is moving along, it needs to be able to eat while it's working. So basically Paul's saying you need to be, pay pastors so that they can eat, they can provide for their families while they're working. And then, surprisingly, he quotes from Jesus. Notice what he says there in verse 18. Scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. That's from Luke 10, 27. I mean, Luke 10, 7. Jesus said, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Financial compensation for pastors. 1 Corinthians 9, 14, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Galatians 6, 6, let the, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, we need to be very careful here. This is not a name it, claim it. Pastor Sean needs a jumbo jet in order to go across the world and do his, um, his ministry type thing. We're not talking about paying exorbitant salaries to pastors, but what we are saying is that the church has an obligation to financially take care of not all the elders, because we have lay elders that, are, that have full-time jobs, but the, the ministerial elders, for my, like, El, like Dustin and myself, those pastors who are vocationally full-time, the church should provide for us. And I'm thankful that you guys do. Uh, your generosity has tremendously blessed me and my family over the years, and we are well taken care of by this church family, and we thank you for that. So the first thing that we see here is the primary task of an elder. He's to lead well, and he does that by preaching and teaching. So what's Pastor Sean's job description? He needs to lead well, and he needs to do that by preaching and teaching to the point of exhaustion, laboring in that. Okay, let's look at the second thing. We see the proper discipline of elders. The proper discipline of elders. Now look at verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, this is designed to protect pastors from unsubstantiated allegations, accusations. Exodus 23.1, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. One of the ways that Satan attacks churches is by spreading rumors in the church, by gossip, and by trying to destroy leadership with unfounded accusations. You know, a pastor can do 99% of the things right, and that 1% that he does wrong, he could get 1,000 complaints. Not for the 99 things he did right, but for that one thing he did wrong. And so the goal of Satan is to cause friction between church members and their pastors. And when a pastor is unfairly maligned or unfairly accused, it causes major division. Some malicious person can destroy a pastor's life by a false allegation. Biblical justice, not social justice that you hear out there, biblical justice requires two or three witnesses. Do you know where innocent until proven guilty comes from? The Bible. The Bible. Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that has been committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses 
shall a charge be established. So if somebody's going to attack or charge or accuse an elder, there's got to be a due process of witnesses. Can't just be a he said, she said, he said, she said. There's got to be two or three witnesses coming forward to corroborate that that elder is truly in sin. Can't be a false allegation. It's got to be corroborated. There's got to be evidence, and there's got to be two or three people coming. Now, verse 20 deals with what happens if it's true. What happens if two or three witnesses come forward and the elder is guilty? Look at verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so the rest may stand in fear. There comes a point where an elder may be in persistent sin and he needs to be rebuked. Now there is a process for confronting sin in the life of the church. Jesus tells us the steps. In Matthew 18, 15 through 17, if your brother sins against you, you go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Step number one, a private meeting. You go to your brother, you go to your sister, and you deal with it privately, and it doesn't need to go beyond that. If there's repentance, if there's reconciliation, it doesn't need to go anywhere. But let's say it doesn't go anywhere. Let's say there's still a problem. Verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. There's the witnesses that every charge may be established by the evidences of two or three witnesses. Okay, step number two. Bring some witnesses along. Okay, let's say number three, the person still does not repent. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Step number three is to bring the entire church together for a meeting to do some church discipline. And then step number four is if he does not listen to the church, if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's final public excommunication from the life of the church. But notice that's the last step. So, if a elder has continued in sin, he's to be rebuked. He's to be confronted. He's to be addressed. And notice what Paul says there. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Well, who's the all? There's a little bit of debate on this. Most commentators think it was all the other elders. That there was a private meeting where that elder was rebuked in front of all the other elders. The elders kind of ganged up on him, if you will, and said, you're in sin. And if he didn't listen to the elders, it was brought before the entire congregation. But what's the point here of this public rebuke? So that the rest will be in fear. The rest of the elders or even the rest of the congregation. You see, when church discipline happens and somebody's rebuked for unrepentant sin and somebody's removed and there's a scandal or there's a sin, it should bring a level of sobriety and seriousness where we all begin to evaluate ourselves and say, wait a minute, if not for the grace of God, that could happen to me. I better walk in fear of the Lord that that doesn't happen to me. Now, We need to be very careful in how we do this. And that's why verse 21 gives us some wisdom. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Prejudging means you made up the mind, you made up your mind before you get all the facts. Partiality means that you are taking in personal biases. He said, she said, you're not weighing the facts. So, It's a very serious thing to get rid of a pastor or an elder. 
I've seen situations where elders were unfairly attacked or were accused, and those accusations were absolutely false. But it caused so much damage just by the accusation itself that it was almost irreparable. So Paul says, listen, Timothy, if you're going to deal with this type of stuff in the life of the church, you've got to be impartial. You've got to use wisdom. You've got to be prudent. You've got to have witnesses. There's got to be due diligence. This is not a free-for-all. You've got to protect not only the congregation, but you've got to protect the, the elder or the pastor that's being, that's being accused. So the church should administer discipline fairly, justly, and with much wisdom. Now, a lot of churches don't practice church discipline. We've done it a few times here at Emmanuel. Where we've actually had a meeting where we've had to gather together and make a decision about an issue. But there's three historical reasons why we do church discipline. Number one is to protect the witness of the church. Church discipline, if, if, if that church allows all manner of sin, they're no different than the world. Number one, it protects the witness of the church. Number two, it protects the purity of the church. If sin is allowed to continue, it's going to infect everybody. It's just going to continue to be like gangrene or cancer. It's going to, it's going to grow. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? But here's the third reason for church discipline. This is the one that most people don't realize. Church discipline is always redemptive in nature. The goal is always to win that person back. If you have to rebuke or remove someone from the fellowship because of unrepentant sin, the goal is never to do it with glee. It's never to be sadistic. It's never to be punitive. It's always to remove them with the hopes that they will repent and come back. There's always that redemptive element. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you remember there was the man who had an incestuous relationship with his mother-in-law, and the church was flaunting it, and Paul says, get rid of him, and they did. They excommunicated him. In 2 Corinthians, many scholars believe that the church was not willing to bring that guy back who had truly repented. Now, we don't have full evidence of this, but this is my personal opinion. When you see 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 8, Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it, not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. What I believe Paul is saying here is you kicked him out. He was grieved to repenting. He's remorseful. He's repented, and he's wanting to come back, and you're saying, no, we're still shunning you. And Paul says, you can't do that. If he's truly repentant, and there's been steps, and he's grieving, and it's godly sorrow, you've got to welcome him back and forgive him. So many churches do not practice church discipline for various reasons. It's complicated. It's messy. There's a lot of misconceptions. Labels, you're being judgmental. You're being pharisaical. You're being legalistic. There's abuses of authority. New Testament scholar from Britain, Donald Guthrie, says this. The abuse of discipline has often led to a harsh and intolerant spirit, but neglect of it has proved a danger almost as great. When faced with sinning elders, a spineless attitude is deplorable. I will say it again. The church rises and falls 
on the faithfulness of its elders. So we've seen, number one, the primary task of elders. Number two, we've seen the process of disciplining elders. Number three, we see the patient process for ordaining elders. In other words, move slow. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. That's an ordination, the laying on of hands. Eldership, pastoring is a high and holy calling, and a congregation should not be hasty in ordaining a man to gospel ministry. That's why here at Emmanuel, if you're going to be an elder, you've got to be a member for a year. So we can see your life, see your doctrine. Even then, you've got to go through a process. Do not be hasty in putting people in spiritual leadership. I have heard too many horror stories of young church planters that wanted to install elders in their church plant, and they, they kind of broke the rules, and they, they didn't get the ideal people, and they installed elders, and it ended up blowing up in their faces, and their churches suffered because they got the wrong guys in at the wrong time. Now, Verse 23, I have no idea why that parenthetical statement's in there, but obviously Timothy had some frequent ailments, and Paul says, drink some wine for your stomach. So we'll just skip right on over that one. So if you've got a stomach ache this morning, go home and have a Chardonnay, I guess. I don't know. Have a little bit of wine for your stomach problems, Timothy. I don't know how much more theological milk I can drain out of that verse, but um, I'll preach a whole sermon on that next week. No, I'm just joking. But then in verse 24 and 25, Paul kind of concludes this teaching about having a godly elder. Why it's so important to wait? Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't be hasty or quick to ordain. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. Some people can hide it really good. Some guys you look at and like, okay, that guy's not elder material. But others can hide it. And Paul says they can hide it really good. But it'll eventually come out in the end. Now, you can never bat a thousand on getting elders. You can never be 100% foolproof on ordaining men who won't disappoint. You've got to do your due diligence. You've got to do as much work on the front end as you can. But there's always going to be somebody out there that plays the game really good that can fake it can pretend, can pull the wool over people's eyes. And what does Paul say? Those sins will appear later. It'll come out. And he also says good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So what goes around comes around. You'll eventually find out if you install an elder too quickly and he's hidden who he truly is. So how do you summarize this passage of Scripture? Well, elders should be appropriately paid for laboring and ministering the Word. Elders should not be falsely accused, and if they are, there needs to be a due process. And if they are falsely accused, that shouldn't happen. But if they do persist in sin, they should be rebuked, they should be disciplined, they should be taken care of, and that the church should be slow and methodical <coughs> and wise in ordaining prospective pastors and elders. The church rises and falls on the leadership of its elders. Now, I'm asking you 
It's kind of a weird spot for me to be in up here. I'm asking you to honor our elders. Take care of our elders. Pray for our elders. Encourage our elders. Follow the leadership of our elders. And, and let me say it this way. Not because we're all that. You know what? We're, we're not. The reason is because Jesus is all that. And our goal as elders is to lead us to follow Jesus. I will say this till my dying breath. Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. It's not Sean Cole. It's Jesus Christ. And we as elders are to lead all of us to follow Jesus. We do our best by the grace of God. Sometimes we fail, but we do our best by the grace of God. So all of us fixing our eyes on Jesus. So would we have a soft heart towards Jesus? Would we always confess our sins towards Jesus? Would we find our hope and forgiveness in Jesus? The church rises and falls on the leadership of its elders. But let me say something even more important than that. That's a very true statement. But an even greater statement is this. A church rises and falls on its submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. A church rises and falls on its submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. And there may be some of you here this morning that have never confessed Jesus as your Lord. You're the leader of your life. You're the one that's charting your course for life. You're in the driver's seat. And you've never come to that point where you said, you know what, I'm a sinner that stands separated from a holy God. I've called the shots for too long. I'm not in charge. And as a matter of fact, when I am in charge, I'm just making a wreck of my life. I need Jesus. So let me encourage you today that if you need Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you repent of your sins, turn from your sins, confess those sins, and trust in Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. And if you do, you'll find His arms wide open to receive you as a child of God to forgive you and give you eternal life. All of us need Jesus. I, as your pastor, need Jesus. Dustin needs Jesus. Our elders need Jesus. Every single one of us in this room needs Jesus. And if we think otherwise, we're fooling ourselves. So as we leave this place, I don't want you to think about us as elders. Yeah, pray for us, encourage us. Yes, this this whole message is on elders. But if we leave this place focused on us, I've done the wrong thing. Let's leave this place focusing on our need for Jesus. He's the senior pastor. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's the one we submit ourselves to. Let us all bow the knee to King Jesus today and say, Jesus, whatever you have for me, your will be done. I submit. I surrender. I wave the white flag. I'm not in charge. You are Jesus. We love you. We honor you, King Jesus. So as I always say, Let us all, what? Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. Great King, as our senior pastor, as the true leader of this congregation, Jesus, we look to you. It's not our agenda, it's not our plan, it's not our future, but it's your plan and purpose in your word that rules and reigns. So help us to be submitting ourselves to your will.
And Lord, I do pray for anybody in this room that doesn't have a relationship with you because they haven't trusted you for salvation, that today would be the day where they repent of their sins and believe in Jesus alone as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I'm thankful for this church and how they treat me as pastor. I'm thankful for Pastor Dustin. I'm thankful for our elders. I'm thankful for all of our spiritual leaders in this church, Lord, that you've blessed us with. You've, You've blessed me with some godly men. Lord, you bless me with some godly men to walk beside me, to walk with me. And Lord, I've never felt alone as pastor in this church. I've always felt their support. And so, Lord, I pray that we as a congregation would give these men double honor. That we would give them double honor for their leadership and their love and their heart for you and their heart for this church. So, Lord, would we leave this place encouraged that you have given us strong leadership in this church, that we are a unified church, that we are doing the best we can by your grace to be faithful to your word, Lord. It's all attributed to you, Jesus, and help us leave this place with our eyes fixed on you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.